give you up Gotta have some faith in the sound It's the one good thing that I've got Got my ticket for the long way round To buy the whiskey for the way Picking up the 
That's what I'm talking about right there. That's what I'm talking about right there. Hey, welcome to Let's Talk on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, Mr. Talk in the house. How y'all doing this wonderful Monday afternoon, the 1st of February, better known as Black History Month, and we're going to bring you some good stuff today, man. We really are. Woo! Okay. Welcome to the show. Glad y'all could make it. Okay. I'm Mr. Talk. If you haven't figured it out by now, that's me. And, um... We got a lot of stuff to talk about today, and I want you to kind of listen a little bit because we're going to bring you the story of a man uh, who in the 1950s did some things down in Little Monroe, North Carolina. Yeah, and um, this is one of the guys that you don't hear much about. So, yeah, his name is Robert Franklin Williams, and uh, yeah, he... And his wife, um, they actually joined the NRA, had a group of black people join the NRA. Yeah, of course, they had to forge the, you know, application a little bit and sound like a white group. But they actually got accepted and joined the NRA. Yeah, but unfortunately, some things happened and Mr. Williams had to leave the country and he learned a lot while overseas. Then he came back and, hey. It's it's a great story, and I think um, people need to know about him. I'm sure down in North Carolina they know a little bit about him, but the rest of us, they don't know too much about him. So that's what I'm going to bring you today, uh, a clip with his wife talking and being interviewed about their time together. Um, very interesting interview. It, it really is very interesting. So then afterwards we'll open up the phone lines and we can have a conversation about it, okay? All right, so let me tell you how you can be a part of the show. The fastest way is just call in at 347-838-8622. Okay, you can also email me at ericletts, L-E-T-S, talk at gmail.com. And let's see what other way is. You can hit me on Twitter. Yeah, and you can hit me on Instagram at Eric Let's Talk and Facebook at Eric Let's Talk. So everything you think of, I got Eric Let's Talk on it, so you should know that's me. All right. And those are all the ways, you know, and the chat room is open as well. www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Mr. Talk. All right. So. With all that being said, let me go on and get this clip started. And uh, once we finish, the clip finishes, we'll come back on and uh, we'll have a conversation about it, okay? So here's Mabel Williams um, talking about her husband, Robert, and herself as uh, they went through the civil rights struggle in the 1950s and 60s in Monroe, North Carolina. Learn something. the cause of freedom and justice. Let our people take to the streets in fierce numbers. Meet violence with violence. And let our battle cry be heard around the world. Freedom. Freedom. Freedom now or death. You are tuned to Radio Free Dixie, the voice of armed self-defense, broadcasting in the year of fire.
This is the story of Robert and Mabel Williams. It marks an important and often forgotten chapter in the civil rights and black liberation movements within a long-standing tradition that affirms the right of communities under violent racist attack to defend themselves. The story begins in Monroe, North Carolina, hometown of the infamous Senator Jesse Helms, but also of Robert and Mabel Williams. It starts in Monroe, then becomes a far-flung odyssey, a journey of resistance from Monroe to Havana, to Vietnam and China, through Africa, and back to the United States. It begins in the middle of the 20th century, as people launch a freedom struggle against racism that would shake the nation and the world. As told by Mabel Williams, the story begins like this. I was born into a segregated society, but at that time I accepted a segregated society because that's all I knew. But after I got married and uh, we started trying to make a living as a family, I found out that we just kept running into barriers of segregation and and we just could not make the kind of living that other young people, uh, white people, were making. And every time we'd start to try to rise up, somebody was always trying to put us back down in our place. What is the position of the U.S. government in Dixie, USA. Yes, the same U.S. government that has appointed itself to safeguard the universal rights of man and to make the world safe for democracy. What is its position on defending the rights of black people within the confines of its own borders? I didn't realize in the very beginning that what was happening to us was wrong because I didn't know all of the implications of segregation. I knew there was a danger because my stepfather had a pearl handle pistol that he kept under his pillow. And it was my job to make up his bed every morning. So I would go and uh, get the pearl handle pistol and put it in the linen closet every morning I found out in hearing the older people talk, they told me to handle it, but don't ever shoot it or, you know, put my fingers on the trigger. But I found out hearing the older people talk that that gun was there because there was a threat to our lives, that possibly some night riders might come and try to do something to us in the middle of the night. So I knew that there was a danger. As long as the Afro-American relies on passive resistance, he can expect no protection from the racist U.S. government. Washington is never upset over the flow of Negro blood. This is the key to the question of why Afro-Americans have never been able to get an anti-lynch law passed. The fact of the matter is that Mr. Charlie never needed one. We lived in a section of town uh, called Quality Hill, and we had to walk about three miles through the white neighborhood, through the downtown Monroe area in order to get to our school. And there was a school about three blocks from us. There was a white school. I never thought that I should go to it. I didn't mind walking with my black friends through the white neighborhood, through the downtown area overcross town to uh, the segregated school. After I got married, after I had met Robert Williams, whose grandparents came out of slavery literate, 
and whose grandmother had taught him that he should stand up like a man, like anybody else. And I never heard these kinds of arguments in my neck of the woods, you know, because my parents were always telling us, this is the law, you abide by the law, you keep a low profile and don't make the white folks angry because they were afraid that we would get killed. When I met Robert and, and we started raising a family, I realized right away that I was in a different situation. Robert was always listening to the news and he'd talk about current events and what was going on in the world. 100 years after the Emancipation Proclamation and nine years after the Supreme Court decision of May 17th, Afro-Americans of Birmingham and racist Dixie are experiencing the wrath of slave masters equaled only to those of South Africa. After Robert and I got married, he was always writing protest articles in the newspaper and articles in papers all over uh, to protest discrimination and segregation and things like that. They had this advertisement saying uh, that if you join the Marine Corps, you could get your education paid for free. And so he decided to go into the Marines on the basis that they were going to give him free education. They would train him for whatever his aptitude showed. Well, they didn't do that. And so he ran into problems right in the Marine Corps. He was sent to the brig a couple of times. I went out to California when he was in the Marines to visit him out there. And um, FBI, we found out, even taped my diary and letters that I had written to him while he was in the Marine Corps. They were investigating him even then. He had had that former training in the Army uh, before going to the Marine Corps. So he had been taught well how to handle arms and was taught and believed in the American tradition of freedom through guns. I came back into the South when I came out of service and, you know, the people started demonstrations, and they were, the black sister would sit on a stool trying to buy a sandwich. And they would put cigarettes burning to their necks, to their backs. They would beat them with chains. In the city where I lived, at one, in one month, the whites rode through, and they struck 18 women on the streets. But we did something about it. We rose up. <laughs> The time was the mid-1950s, as the ongoing daily resistance of African Americans and the Supreme Court decision against segregation set the stage for the rapid expansion of the civil rights movement. Robert Williams, like many other black GIs, came back home to Monroe. He and Mabel and others began to organize. He became head of the local NAACP and built a strong grassroots branch. They implemented a wide variety of legal and nonviolent tactics that were increasingly met with Klan violence, allowed and often supported by local, state, and federal officials. So when he came back home to Monroe, North Carolina, he became the president of the NAACP, and the Supreme Court had outlawed segregation in public schools, and we started organizing in the community, getting people together. Early in 56, 
I have become very active in the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and we started uh, a struggle to integrate and to win uh, better rights for Negroes, economic rights of education and uh, the right of equal protection under the law. The local power structure was all in favor of the segregation that existed. And uh, the courts were segregated. Black people had to sit in the balcony of the courts. Uh, Black people were always out in front of the judge, but there were no black judges. Vast majority of the lawyers were all white. And they were protecting, through the legal system, they were protecting the system of segregation in North Carolina. Tactics of nonviolence will continue. That in Monroe, we too believed in nonviolent tactics. We've used these tactics. We've used all tactics. But we also believe that any struggle for liberation should be a flexible struggle, that we shouldn't take the attitude that one method alone is the way to uh, liberation. This is to become dogmatic. We must have a flexible campaign. We must use nonviolence as a means as long as this is feasible. So at that point, Rob said, well, since we don't have any justice in the courts, in cases where uh, people do harm to us, we will right away defend ourselves. Policemen were arming white thugs and white racists to attack nonviolent students. They will look the other way. The armed services of the United States, the police officials, the Justice Department will look the other way and will say that uh, we can't catch these people. We're sorry. We've done everything we can do to prevent violence against the Negro. But now, in a little case in Monroe, North Carolina, where Negroes gallantly, who were outnumbered and outgunned, gallantly rose to the defense of their homes and their persons, that these Negroes were criticized for defending themselves. Perhaps they would prefer to have seen us die. Anyone who can think logically can see that these minute men, these fascists, racists, are being armed and they are mobilizing a fascist element that will be turned loose on Afro-Americans who get out of line. And to get out of line means Afro-Americans who petition militantly for their constitutional rights, for their human rights. Uh, This campaign in our homes is completely divorced from the campaign of the Freedom Riders and the students who were picketing on a nonviolent line. But in our homes, where our communities were being invaded by white racists and thugs, we were arming ourselves to defend ourselves. And if we hadn't been armed, we would have been the victims of one of the first pogroms of modern times against the Afro-Americans. We will meet their violence with our violence. And, oh, my God, the press just blew that all out of proportions. 
They said Robert Williams was advocating the indiscriminate slaughter of white babies in the cribs. It was a system of segregation that was fighting for its life, and they were going to do everything they could to crush any movement that was going on, that was coming up. Because our branch was a branch uh, organized and uh, supported mostly by young people, most of the officials were veterans of the Second uh, World War, and uh, we became very militant in our attitude. And we, we won the name of being the most militant branch of the whole National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. But naturally, we couldn't uh, win this title without antagonizing a lot of the people who prevent Negroes from enjoying human rights in the United States. So Rob organized the Rifle Club. We all were members. I was a member of the Rifle Club. We had uh, several of our ladies became members of the Rifle Club, and we started training to learn how to handle weapons and how to shoot all for the protection of our homes and ourselves when the Klan and other rabble-rousers decided that they wanted to come in and, and invade our homes or our neighborhoods. So that's how the Rifle Club got started, and that's how our self-defense movement got started. of racial discrimination in city employment. We had asked for fair treatment uh, of blacks when applying for welfare aid and uh, aid to dependent children. And uh, we had asked uh, for the abolition of police brutality and all forms of racial discrimination, and we had asked that all of the schools be integrated. So as a result of this, this created much animosity in the community. And most of all, this animosity was directed at me as the head of the local NAACP. And um, so many threats were made by the Klan that it was necessary for us to form an armed guard. We formed an armed guard. We armed the people. We kept armed men to protect our community from Klan invasions. One of the most effective and noteworthy strategies put into practice by the Monroe Movement, spearheaded by Robert and Mabel, was a newsletter called The Crusader. Started in 1959, the newsletter grew from a small local effort into a national and international means of communication. Over time, The Crusader was instrumental in building an international network that would support armed self-defense, resist the Klan, and provide assistance to Robert, Mabel, and their two young sons. Well, we had uh, our newsletter, The Crusader, which was our personal journal that we had started putting out in 1956, we found that the local press was not telling people what was going on, not only in our uh, local struggle, but in the struggles all over the South. People were rising up against segregation and all kinds of movements going on, and our local paper was not saying anything about it, or if they mentioned it, it would be just in passing. 
And so that's the way we got our story out to other people. That's how the people in New York and in California and all around were able to know what was happening in Monroe. Suppose in America tonight we were to enter some of the restricted places. Suppose we started in these places with a mixed crowd. How would they know who to discriminate against? Would it be because of class? Would it be because of money? No. It would be because of African blood, because of blackness. Because when they see black, they see in their mind an inferiority. They see someone who must be denied the good things of life. And this is what they call democracy. Their democracy. You must understand what this democracy it is. And it's not a matter of being opposed to them because they're white. It's not because they're white. It's not because of the way they look. It is because of the way they act. And what is this action? It is an action of almost 400 years of terror, of lynching, of enslavement, of rape, of maiming, and of brutality against the people who have been taken into bondage, who have been raped from Africa, who have been taken to a new world to build a paradise that we cannot share in. We had a, a kissing case that became notorious where two little black boys were kissed by a little white girl and were sent to a youth training center for indeterminate sentences, you know. And so he went around and spoke about those things. We told in our Crusader newsletter about the rising struggles in Africa and in South America and in Cuba. We began to win friends all over the country. Meanwhile, the civil rights struggle intensified all over the South and spread to the North, growing in numbers, strength, and militancy. The example of Monroe in the early 1960s and the words of Robert Williams sent out a clarion call for the right to armed self-defense against racist violence. In the next few years, this call was taken up by other groups, such as the Deacons for Defense and Justice in Louisiana, who protected civil rights workers. In the later 1960s, the writings of Robert Williams, especially his book, Negroes with Guns, would have a major influence on the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense in their struggles against police brutality. But even early on, as the Crusader newsletter began reaching more subscribers in the early 1960s, a support network grew. The struggles in Monroe became known nationwide, especially in radical circles, black and white. People sent funds and other support. One of the strongest bases of support was in New York City, and Williams made a number of visits there. Robert Williams and Malcolm X made a powerful friendship and connection. In the course of traveling, he became acquainted with Malcolm X. And uh, when he would go to, to New York, Malcolm would invite him to speak at the uh, Temple Number no. 7, where Malcolm was the uh, minister. And every time he'd go to New York to speak or anything, Malcolm would either take us out to the restaurant or he would uh, invite Robert to speak at the mosque. There were times when they met together and uh, had dialogue about what was going on in Monroe, 
what was going on in Atlanta and all over the South and what was going on all over the world. Harlem's got a special place in my heart. Harlem's been an inspiration to me and to all of those who struggled with me in the South. In fact, I used to come to Harlem on a ladder that used to take up money there. And in uh, the mosque, number seven, when Malcolm was minister, they used to take up money in the mosque and they send it back with me to the South to buy guns. Robert Williams and Malcolm X were both aware of the way the world was changing, the role the U.S. government was playing internationally, and the growth of anti-colonial and liberation movements in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. The Cuban Revolution was brand new, and Robert Williams was among the first to recognize its impact. Very early on in the organizing in Monroe, he went to see Cuba for himself, and was one of the founders of the National Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Robert first was invited to go to Cuba uh, with 10 other writers and um, political activists to see what the Cuban Revolution had accomplished right after Fidel Castro came to power. But that time, uh, the Cuba was not had not declared itself a leftist communist nation. Uh, they just invited some black scholars to come because they had made a lot of changes with the race issue. And when he came back, he was instrumental with some of the left uh, people in New York to establish the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Robert began to travel for them all over the country to uh, speak and trying to get our government at the time to recognize the Cuban government's legitimacy to exist and to have friendly relations with Cuba after the revolution. And I returned to the United States from Cuba right after the trial of the Cuban revolution. A lot of white newspaper men met me at the airport in New York. And they said, but how could you, an American, how could you stand it in Cuba? How could you stand to hear them talking about Yankee go home, Yankee go home, U.S. imperialism. I told the man, I said, look, the man said Yankee. I'm not a Yankee. <laughs> you have deprived me of everything on this earth that would make me a Yankee. <laughs> now when the man says Yankee go home, he's talking about you. And he's not talking about me. And I told him, I said, you know what? I felt good. <laughs> I've never felt so good in my life. <laughs> to be in a crowd of people of all shapes, all kinds of people, and they all were standing up with their weapons, with their guns. And they said, Yankees go home and they meant it. There was the rising tide of national movements in Africa, people rising up to try to take control of their own destiny. There were movements going on all over South America. The Native Americans were moving, and we were uniting with all of those people. Through our crusader, we were able to publish 
what was happening in other movements and send our crusader to these other movements so that they could see what was happening not only with us but what was happening in um, uh, the uprisings going on all over the world. And as a result, we were building a whole network of people who were desiring change and uh, internationalizing our full struggle. Meanwhile, in Monroe, the struggle intensified. A major campaign began to integrate the town's tax-supported swimming pool. We were picketing the swimming pool. The local swimming pool was segregated. It had been built with uh, federal funds during the WPA program, but it was segregated. It was only for the white children. A lot of our young black people had been drowning in unsupervised swimming holes over the years. And we had decided that uh, we were going to ask for permission to use the pool. Well, the first thing they asked, uh, Rob and the NAACP asked the city council if they would allow us to use the pool one day a week. They said, uh, no, 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 after the consultation, they could not do that. And Rob said, well, why couldn't we use it one day a week? They said, well, we'd have to drain the pool and wash it out before the white children could go in again. Then they went to the city council again and said, well, if you won't let us use the present pool once a week, will you build a pool in the black neighborhood for our children because our children are drowning in unsupervised swimming holes? Well, the city council said, no, we don't have the money to build. At that point, Robert got irate. He was so angry. They said that eventually they would build us a pool when they got the funds. So we asked them, when could we expect it? One year, they said no. We asked five years, and they said no, they couldn't be sure. We asked ten years, and they said they couldn't be sure. And then we asked finally if we could expect it within 15 years. And they said that they couldn't give us any definite promise. He said, well, if you don't have the money to build a separate pool for us, then you can't afford segregation, so we'll have to take other actions. So that's when we decided to start picketing the pool for the equal opportunity to use that pool. While we were preparing the groundwork for possible court action, the uh, Ku Klux Klan, that had been somewhat undercover in Union County came out in the open. We didn't pay this much attention. The uh, press started running articles about the Klan uh, activity. That in the beginning they mentioned that 100, 150, sometimes 200 people would gather in open fields and they would have these rallies. Then the number kept going up. The number went up 3,000, 4,000, 5,000. The last estimate by the Monroe Inquirer estimated that 7,500 Klansmen had gathered in a field, and they, they were discussing these integrationists. They had hoped, just by virtue of, of sheer numbers, that this would frighten us out of the town. So they decided to take uh, direct action. After these rallies, they would come through the community and motorcades, and they would uh, honk their horns and uh, fire pistols from car windows. 
On one occasion, they caught uh, a colored woman on the street, on an isolated corner, and they made her dance at pistol point on the street in uh, this colored community. And uh, so a group of uh, young men who were primarily veterans decided, since the city officials wouldn't stop the Klan, that, uh, that we would stop the Klan ourselves. So we started a campaign of, of arming ourselves. Well, one thing, in our hometown, the Klan recruiter was recruiting right out of the police station. The FBI, as well, was working right with the officials. When we would make a report, we'd go all the way to Charlotte, North Carolina. That's where the FBI office was. He would go and say, this is what the police has done, illegal things that the police is doing with black people. And they come to the sheriff's department but never get back to him. They tell the sheriff what Rob had said was going on. Clan activities going on. Rob would call and say, Well, I'm sure you saw in the paper where they're getting ready to have a clan rally at such and such a place and the police are usually there to support the clan. And the FBI said, Well, oh yeah, well, okay, thank you. But they would come and tell the police that Rob had uh, reported what was going on. And we found that out also after we got our Freedom of Information files, that uh, the Klan was coming and talking with the chief of police who was in cahoots with the Klan, was allowing the Klan leader to recruit in his police station. Did the U.S. Justice Department go to the same chief of police that I had asked them to indict, the same chief of police that I had filed an affidavit against, the same chief of police that they knew had been my enemy and the enemy of Negroes and the friend of the Ku Klux Klan since 1956? Did they go to a Klan-sponsored chief of police to ask him for data on a civil rights fighter of the United States? Well, they most certainly did. And this should be enough to awaken many people to the fact that the Justice Department of the United States is fast becoming an arm of the Ku Klux Klan, of the John Birch Society, of the Minutemen, and all the racist groups of the United States. And there were several attempts made on Rob's life. They tried to kill him. They tried to run him over. He had a little Hillman car. And uh, we were on the way to pick at that swimming pool one day, and a Klan car tried to bump him off the road. And it happened right in front of the state police post. And the state police were standing out watching what was going on. And they never once tried to intercede to stop it. And attempt on his life right in plain view of the state police, and they did nothing. It just happened that Rob was able to outmaneuver them and was reaching for his rifle. And so the, the Klan attackers just sped off. He reported it to the chief of police, and the chief of police told him, if you go and bring him in, we'll see if we can issue a warrant for him. So 
you know, the collusion was there. They were working with the uh, Klan. The FBI was working, supporting them. They were trying to preserve their system of segregation that had been enforced for so many years that was about to be cracked. Negroes need not be told by any philosophy or by any political party that uh, racial oppression is wrong, that racial oppression itself inspires the Negro to rebellion. And it is on this ground that the people of Monroe have protested. It is on this ground that the people of Monroe have refused to conform uh, to the standards of Jim Crow life, of Jim Crow society. It is on, uh, on this basis that they have struck out against inhumanity of racial prejudice. The situation came to a head as a group of Freedom Riders came to Monroe to engage in nonviolent demonstrations at the courthouse in support of the struggles against segregation. We had Freedom Riders to come into Monroe, black and white students from all over, to come and do some nonviolent workshops and help participate in our struggle uh, picketing around the courthouse. And I say they because we had an agreement with the students that they would do the picketing in a nonviolent way around the courthouse, but when they came back to our community that we would always protect our community with guns. The students were in town picketing and the city fathers decided they were going to use insecticide spray trucks and sprayed the picketers. And then on Sunday, the city fathers had decided that that was the day that they were going to crush our whole movement. So they began to allow the crowd to beat up on the students and they arrested some of the students and a lot of the students were being beaten up. And so we were in the process of uh, trying to coordinate things in our community to keep things from getting out of hand. Well, um, to make a long story short, uh, a white couple drove into our community during the time that um, all of this was going on. They were advised to get out of their car by a group of angry citizens who were in the street and they walked up the street to our house in our yard, talked with Rob in that yard and tried to get Rob to take them out of the community. Of course, Rob told them, I didn't bring you in the community and I'm not taking you out. But eventually those people left and they said that they had no idea that they were kidnapped. They just thought that they had been mistreated and they went home and forgot about the incident but that the police and the press came, and that's what made it a so-called kidnapping. And it was decided that we, uh, Rob especially, should leave because otherwise they were coming in there and, and we, uh, he had gotten a warning that in 30 minutes he was going to be hanging from the courthouse square. I had uh, left North Carolina only after the chief of police had called me and said that the uh, state troopers were coming and that in 30 minutes 
I would be hanging in the courthouse square. I realized that this thing was not just a local matter, that the U.S. Uh, government had, had entered into the picture, that they were just as determined to destroy me as the Ku Klux Klan. So I decided that I had to leave. The FBI had said we were traveling as a family, so we had to split up in order to uh, survive. That what happened in Monroe, North Carolina, had better become a lesson to the oppressors and the racists of America because it is symbolic, symbolic of a new attitude, symbolic of a new era. It means that the Negro people are becoming restless. It means that there will be many more racial explosions in the United States in days to come. Monroe was just the beginning, but I dare predict that Monroe will become a symbol, a symbol of the new Afro-American, a symbol of the Afro-American determined to rid himself of the stigma, the stigma of race prejudice, to rid himself of the pain and torture of race hate and oppression, the determination to rid himself of these evils, of these social evils at any cost, and that the oppressor in the United States will find, in the days to come, will find that the Negroes in their struggle are becoming more militant and that they will find a growing attitude of exchanging blow for blow, uh, of meeting violence with violence. Robert and Mabel Williams and their two young sons were forced by death threats and the false kidnapping charge to flee Monroe. Their first thought was to head to New York City and their supporters there. We left Monroe in the middle of the night with the help of our Crusader family who had come down, thinking that we would go into uh, New York. And when we got to New York, thinking that we were going to stay there a while, we found out that uh, we'd been there overnight next morning. Uh, the FBI had issued an all-points bulletin for Rob, saying he was armed and dangerous, uh, and was traveling in the uh, company of a, his family. It was a shoot-on-sight announcement that they put out, and they also put his uh, picture up in the post offices uh, as one of the ten most wanted criminals in the United States. So we thought, well, we go to Canada, and then we'll be safe. We can stay there until things are cleared up, and then we can come back home. And the Toronto Daily Star had a picture of Rob, about an eight and a half by 11 picture on the front page. 
and said that this man was a criminal, was armed and dangerous, and the FBI had asked the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to intercede and help to send him back to the United States to justice in Monroe, North Carolina. So at that point, we knew that we could no longer stay in Canada. The only other place at that point that was available to us was the possibility of going to Cuba. As it turns out, we learned later that Fidel had notified all of the Cuban embassies around the world when he found out that Rob was in trouble, that if he should show up, that they should help him in any way that they could. And so that's how we decided or got to go to Cuba. So then I decided that Canada would be no safer than the United States. I could think of no other place in the Western Hemisphere where a Negro would be treated as a human being, where that the race problem would be understood, and where people would not look upon me as a criminal, but as a victim of a trumped-up charge. And so in thinking that I had to leave, I remember that I had twice been to Cuba. I remember that the Cuban people were very sympathetic toward the oppressed Afro-American people in the, the United States. I also remembered that the Cuban people had divorced themselves from the fellowship of capitalist oppression, from the fellowship of racist nations. And I realized that the Cuban people could analyze my problem without being influenced by racial prejudice and racism. So then I decided that it would be better for me to come to Cuba. Before we went to Cuba, we used to send the Crusader there, and they would run some of our stories in their newspapers. So the Cuban people, a lot of them were aware of our struggle in the United States. So we met one particular man, and Robert was telling him about our uh, newsletter, The Crusader, and how we used to uh, publish it in, in the United States. And he said, yes. Yeah. I well, why don't you put it out again here? And Rob said, well, I, I don't know that I can. And he said, well, I work in a print shop. I'll go to my print shop and see if the people will do it. said, I think we'll do it for nothing. We'll print it for you. And so he went to his uh, print shop and they called the union folk together and they decided, yes, we will print this for Robert Williams free of charge. And so that's how the Crusader got started in Cuba, the Crusader in exile. I started appealing to readers everywhere to protest to the U.S. government, to the U.S. Justice Department, to protest the fact that there was no 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution in Monroe and that uh, the city officials, the local bureau of the FBI in Charlotte, the governor of the state of North Carolina, and all of these people were in a conspiracy to deny Negroes their constitutional rights under the 14th uh, Amendment. We always had shortwave radio. Uh, listening to the radio, Robert kept thinking, well, 
there's nothing coming out of the U.S. officially that is uh, telling, really telling our story, telling about what's going on with the black people in the United States. And we need to get that message out. And so he approached Fidel Castro with the idea of establishing a radio program uh, that would be his program that would tell what's going on in the United States. He agreed with Rob, okay, you can have the program, and Rob decided to call it Radio Free Dixie because Rob had decided that we wanted to have a musical program, but at the same time, the music to attract the attention of the people, jazz, protest music that came out of our struggle so we could get people's attention and then we would be able to give them the message of what was happening to our people in the United States uh, in the struggle. Mainly Rob wrote his own script. Uh, the editorials were his. One of my main jobs was reading uh, news items that we were able to get from the struggle going on in the United States and making announcements as well and uh, helping to select the music. And we had a weekly program that was rebroadcast. Uh, so it, it came out twice a week. And um, that's how Radio Free Dixie was born. From Havana, Cuba, free territory of the Americas, Radio Free Dixie invites you to listen to the free voice of the South. Stay with us for music, news, and commentary by Robert F. Williams. In the spirit of 76, in the cause of freedom and justice, let our people take to the streets in fierce numbers. Meet violence with violence. And let our battle cry be heard around the world. Freedom, freedom, freedom now or death. You are tuned to Radio Free Dixie, the voice of armed self-defense, broadcasting in the year of fire. <laughs> We may not have a cent to pay the rent, but we're going to make it. I know we will. We may have to eat beans every day, but we're going to make it. I know we will. And if a job is hard to find, and we have to stand in the welfare line, I've got your love and you know you've got mine. During the time that uh, uh, the civil rights movement was heating up, the student movement was heating up, uh, they were putting dogs on the protesters, they were allowing them to be beaten up uh, in the south of the United States, they were uh, spraying them with water hoses, and then all of a sudden we got the news that these black girls had been blown up in Sunday school in a Birmingham church.
Sunday, September 15th, in the year of our Lord, 1963. It was a cool, overcast morning in Birmingham, Alabama. Sunday school classes were just ending in the basement of the 50-year-old yellow brick 16th Street Baptist Church. The morning's lesson was The Love That Forgives, the fifth chapter of Matthew. Outside, parents were arriving to collect the children. At 22 minutes past the hour of 10, a force let loose that electrified and shook the world. The Birmingham Police Department's six-wheel riot tank entered the area and cops commenced firing shotguns over the Negroes' heads to rock-throwing retaliation. Young boys started stoning passing cars with white passengers. Police ordered them to stop. One 16-year-old boy ran. A cop killed him with a buckshot blast. Sunday, September 15, 1963. 19 hurt, five dead. This didn't happen in Nazi Germany, and it didn't happen in South Africa. It happened right here in America, in Birmingham, Alabama. It didn't happen back in the Dark Ages. It happened in 1963, right after the March on Washington. And it wasn't a dream. This was a nightmare. Where were the leaders? Where was America? Where was the government? Minister Matham, who was guilty of the bombing in Birmingham? The government was guilty. The guilt is upon the United States government for the murder of those four little girls who died in that bombing. The guilt was upon the United States government for those little boys who were shot down right afterward because it is the failure of the government to do its job that has given the people of that area the feeling that they can brutalize and victimize and murder the Afro-American in cold blood knowing that nothing will be done about it. The government was guilty. The government still is guilty and will always be guilty until the murderers of those little girls have been brought to justice. When the four little girls were killed praying in a Birmingham church, when they had their, their heads blown off by racist thugs, I made many appeals, and I felt rather frustrated because I had always advocated a policy of self-defense. I had believed in fighting back. Now I was out of the country and this horrible thing had happened. And I felt empty inside and helpless. And I wondered what I could do. And what did I have? I had the telegraphic services of Cuba. So I started to use that. I appealed to many leaders. Robert was uh, fearing uh, that if some worldwide attention wasn't brought to bear on what was going on, that it was going to become a genocidal uh, maneuver against our movement, and the movement would be crushed by, and, and genocide would take place against our people. From Cuba in 1963, Robert Williams called on world leaders to protest Birmingham and support the struggle against racism. One powerful world leader responded, Chairman Mao Zedong of China, who issued his first public statement in 10 years, his famous statement in support of the struggle of the Negro people of the United States against discrimination. It was an act of solidarity at a crucial time that Robert and Mabel never forgot. Meanwhile, in the United States, 
mass frustration and anger built with unemployment in urban centers, more and more soldiers of color killed in Vietnam, and police shootings of black youth. 1965 saw the assassination of Malcolm X and the historic Los Angeles Watts Rebellion. Williams, from Cuba, in 1965, broadcast this defiant message on Radio Free Dixie. We are witnessing the beginning of a ferocious and devastating firestorm. We are living in an age of great upheaval. We are living in an age of violence and revolution. We are living in an age where the angry cry of freedom rises from every quarter as the slave rises to challenge the enslaver. Yes, we see mighty racist America quiver from the impact of a terrifying shockwave of freedom. Yes, Los Angeles. Los Angeles is a warning to oppressive racist beasts that they can no longer enjoy immunity from retribution for their brutal crimes of violence and oppression of our people. Let them be apprised of the fact that we are going to have justice set the torch to racist America. The masses of our people want relief from their misery. They want freedom and justice, and they want it now. Unemployment is greater than before. The Afro-American is still the last to be hired and the first to be fired. The Afro-American's head is still the number one target of the brutal thug cops billy club. The Afro-American is still the number one victim of racist kangaroo court frame-ups. Our homes and churches are still being bombed and burned to the ground. We must protect ourselves. We must defend ourselves. We must meet violence with violence. Racist and imperialist America has extended herself too much on the world front. She cannot fight imperialist wars throughout the world and put down a colonial war at home simultaneously. My brothers and sisters, the only justice we are going to get is the justice we take. Times are critical. We are facing a future where in the streets shall become like rivers of blood. Let us be prepared to fight to the death. Let it be known to the world that we shall meet their sophisticated weapons of violence with the crude and simple flame of a match. Let us resist tyranny to the death. Resist, resist, resist. Burn, burn, burn. Death to the oppressor. Down with the thug cops to the streets and let our battle cry be heard around the world. Freedom. Freedom, freedom now, or death. With their exile in Cuba, as well as trips to China and to Vietnam, the world stage opened up to Robert and Mabel, and they learned to navigate its currents. It was a contradictory time in world affairs, as Mabel explains. 
while we were in Cuba, there was a worldwide political struggle going on. One of the main struggles going on was the struggle between the United States and the Soviet Union. And that was to try to win over the allegiance of the third world people. When Chairman Mao came out in support of the black people and their struggle against racial discrimination, that because of the United States wanting to pretend to be on the side of third world people, I think that was one of the reasons that they saw a necessity to stop supporting the racist side. But on the other hand, in the communist world, there was a struggle going on between the Soviet Union and China. The Soviet Union and China were vying to support the Cuban Revolution. And so there were political struggles going on the whole time that we were there. And there were elements within Cuba who wanted to follow the Soviet line, and there were elements who wanted to follow the China line. However, the Soviet Union was the one that was providing the most economic support. They really were more in accord with the China position, they were economically forced to go with the Soviets because they were the ones who were providing the mainstay for their stability. When those struggles go on, they filter down to folks like us, Rob and me and Radio Free Dixie and Crusader and all of the things that we were doing. Rob realized at that moment that it was not in our best interest to remain in Cuba. Members of the Communist Party from America who had come over to help Cuba, they gave us a fit from the time that we came there. They did not want us to go on radio in the first place. They didn't want us to publish our newsletter, The Crusader, because they disagreed with the fact that we were championing the black people's struggle in the United States saying that Malcolm X was a black fascist and that Rob was a black nationalist and that we were the kind of people who should not be supported. At this point, it was not a class struggle. It was a struggle to uh, get our rights as a nation, a black nation, a black group of people who were struggling for their rights. Well, I would uh, prefer to think of myself as uh, an uh, internationalist and that I'm interested in the problems of Africa, of Asia, of Latin America. I believe that we all have a struggle, that is uh, it's a single struggle for liberation. But now I'm for the liberation of my people, that I am an Afro-American first. But I think that uh, discrimination, uh, race, hatred, is something that is undesirable. And I'm just as uh, much against the racial uh, discrimination in all forms, every place in the world as I am in uh, the United States, if it's an injustice. The Chinese were very helpful, and the Cubans were very helpful, and the Vietnamese were very helpful in Cuba for us to make the transition from Cuba to China. 
we had been invited to China after Chairman Mao made his famous statement calling on the people of the world to support the African American in their struggle against racial discrimination. We had been invited to China on their National Day, and they had rallies in support of our struggle. Rob and I used to laugh about the fact that we had to leave America to be recognized as Americans, because every time we were introduced, we were introduced as representatives of the American people. By the mid-1960s, the cry of black power raised during a Southern demonstration signaled more than a powerful rallying cry. It also came to represent the growth of a new wave of revolutionary black nationalism. Williams was seen as a prophet of this drive for economic, political, and military self-determination. He was named international chairman of the Revolutionary Action Movement, RAM, and president in exile of the Republic of New Africa, or RNA, which called for reparations and an independent black nation. This is Robert Williams speaking to a large rally in China in 1966, explaining black power. What is the meaning of this cry, black power, in a land dominated by the unmerciful power of white intruders who murdered and all but exterminated the rightful owners, the American Indians? Black power means that black men want to have some control over their own lives to have a respected voice in public affairs that affect them. We resent being a colonial people, treated as third-class citizens in our own native land. We resent being forbidden to speak for ourselves, even in black belts, where we constitute as much as 85% of the population. We resent being deformed by a white man's mold in a degenerate white supremacy society that derives and belittles our African heritage and makes us ashamed of our ethnic characteristics. Black power is the vehicle by which we hope to reach a stage wherein we can be proud black people without the necessity of an apology for our non-Anglo-Saxon features. The dominant society in racist America is reactionary, imperialist, racist, and decadent, and we wish to disassociate ourselves from it. Black power is a dissident force challenging the racist white power structure that is so heinously exterminating the people of Vietnam and threatening the world with nuclear destruction. The Vietnamese struggle for liberation held center stage during this historical period. Robert and Mabel broadcast many commentaries about Vietnam on Radio Free Dixie, and later anti-war broadcasts beamed from Hanoi to U.S. soldiers. In 1968, from China, Williams wrote and distributed Listen, Brother, an anti-war pamphlet addressed to black soldiers fighting in Vietnam. Robert and Mabel also visited Vietnam, participating in an international solidarity conference. It is a crying shame that hypocritical and double-dealing Mr. Charlie has the audacity to rabble-rouse racist America to the point of accepting massive violence against the innocent people of Vietnam 
while brainwashing the oppressed Negro to adhere to the masochistic philosophy of nonviolence. Yes, Big Daddy orders a semi-state of war footing and dispatches elite troops to defend Mr. Charlie's version of democracy in Vietnam while Afro-Americans bleed and die from the lack of police protection in the black ghettos of racist America. What a sham. What blatant hypocrisy. Black Americans can be unjustly imprisoned, maimed and murdered without recourse to law in the social jungle of racist America, yet black men are expected to fight and die in a white man's war of conquest and imperialism. What is this so-called democracy that miserable poor whites and oppressed and dehumanized blacks are ordered to fight and die for? It is a phony democracy where police brutality is considered standard procedure. It is a farce of a democracy where the worth of an individual is determined by the color of one's skin. It is Greensboro, Alabama, where defenseless women and children are being gassed, clubbed, maimed, and jailed for seeking human rights in a savage country that has assigned unto itself the Hitlerite task of introducing white supremacy, law, and order to a multicolored world. We had gone to Vietnam prior to our final move to China. There was a peace conference that took place in Hanoi. And Rob and I went to Hanoi and participated in the conference in support of the Vietnamese people in their fight against the United States. We met Ho Chi Minh. We met one young man who had been uh, napalmed by our American troops. We met with a pilot who had been shot down over Vietnam. They brought him to have an evening with us. The Vietnamese brought him. We were just to Ho Chi Minh, and when we left, started to leave from China, Peking, the Vietnamese embassy invited us for dinner. And so when we got ready to go, they gave us some presents, and they stood up, and the man said, uh, we want to thank you, and we want to congratulate you. And I asked him, why do you want to thank me? He said, because we read your publication. He said, and we were fighting the battle limited to the countryside. And we read your publication on urban guerrilla warfare, and we realized we had to go into the city. And that's where the idea came from. And when we looked at your people in the city of Detroit, what they had done to it, we decided to have the Ted Offensive. So don't, so don't ever think that what you're doing is not being seen. Wherever we were, whether it was Cuba or China, we had in mind that eventually we would return to the United States. While we were in China during the course of the Cultural Revolution, there was beginning to be more and more pressure to try to choose sides between the struggling groups that were going on. And once again, Rob decided this is not a time for me to be involved in internal politics of this country. My struggle is not here. My struggle is in the United States of America. Well, there were many reasons why I came back. One main reason was 
that in China that I lived quite well. And I saw our youth dying in the streets. I saw the people suffering in the ghettos. And I had started to feel somewhat guilty for having such a soft, easy life in a foreign country while my people were suffering in America. That was one reason, but not the full reason. The journey back from China, we came through Tanzania. Robert went ahead. He was thinking at that time that we might move to Africa if we could not make the kind of connections we needed to make to move back to the United States. By that time, he had been voted in as president of the Republic of New Africa. So while he was in Tanzania, he met with officials from that organization. And so he was in the process of scouting out what could be done about returning to the U.S., especially after he found out talking with a lot of the freedom fighters who had been a part of gaining the independence for Tanzania, that they were under tremendous pressure from the U.S. and Britain financially. So uh, he decided that, uh, well, maybe it'd be better for him to just concentrate on trying to come back home. I never really wanted to leave America. But to me, I was escaping from a mob, a lynch mob of the Ku Klux Klan. So I was forced out. And from the very beginning, I always looked forward to the day when I could return. And I always hoped that conditions would develop to such an extent that I would find a favorable time to return. And now, eight years later, because of certain conditions, I felt that the time is more opportune now for my return than it's been at any time before. The boys and I would come back home first, and uh, then we came into Detroit. We had chosen Detroit because Michigan had never sent any black person back to the South who had been involved in civil rights and so forth. And when the boys and I arrived, we were met by the RNA. The RNA had armed guards that stayed with us after we came to the United States. Then we were all preparing for Robert's return. In looking at America from abroad, I see America in a state of deterioration. This is a very serious state. And I think now we are living in an era when we are seeing the last of the America that we have known. And I wanted to come back to be a witness to this change, to see this change with my own eyes. And I'd like to be here with my people when the spirit of transition finalizes. The trip back for Mabel and their sons went smoothly, but Robert encountered obstacles in Egypt, then was imprisoned in England, where he went on a hunger strike. Finally, in 1969, he and his attorney were flown to Detroit in an airliner with no other passengers. In Michigan, he fought against extradition to North Carolina, and five years later, in 1974, he returned to Monroe, where the charges were finally dropped. 
Back in the United States, the family had to adjust to political, social, and cultural changes that had taken place during their eight years of exile. Even as social protests and anti-war activities reached a high point, COINTELPRO repression took a deadly toll on black liberation organizations. Rob and Mabel continued the struggle for community and individual survival. Based on his close association with Chinese leaders, Robert became a China scholar and consultant at the University of Michigan. He began work on his autobiography. Deeply concerned by the massive onslaught of drugs into communities of color, the family organized their community to seek solutions and joined in struggles against racism in education, housing, the courts, and the prison system. In 1977, Rob, Mabel, and other local community activists of Baldwin established the People's Association for Human Rights. The association fought and won many battles on behalf of Lake County residents. Robert F. Williams died in 1996 at the age of 71. Memorial tributes were held in Detroit and New York City, and the funeral was held in Monroe. His many contributions were celebrated, including his organizing, courage, and leadership, his proclamation of the right to armed self-defense against Klan violence, his fiery writings and militant radio broadcasts, and his consistent black nationalist and internationalist perspectives. His life and work stand as a testimonial to the resistance strand of self-respect, self-defense, and self-determination that runs through ongoing battles for African-American liberation. Mabel Williams and her son live in Michigan and continue their lifelong work for freedom. We were able to survive having built networks of people who have really the true interests of the people at heart all over the world. And I think that there still is um, that element of people who are out there working and and that uh, we all constitute a real power, but we don't know it. The only justice we are going to get is the justice we take. We are going to have justice set the torch to racist America. Let us resist tyranny to the death. Resist, resist, resist. And let our battle cry be heard around the world. Freedom, freedom, freedom now or death.
information right there that clip you heard was from miss mabel williams she's well she was the wife of robert f williams and that was her description on how um how life was you know for mr williams and herself and her kids you know um just the things that some of the the so-called leaders had to go through in order to enact change um it's interesting that she was explaining a lot of it, man. You can just sit there and picture it, and you're just like, wow. You know, and in a crazy way, some of it's still going on today, just in a different form. If you really sit back and think about what she was describing with um, the politicians and, and things of that nature, man, you just go back and you just sit back and you think, you're like, wow, that's still going on. Even though the... Um, Beating by police, or law enforcement today, political correct term. Yeah. So some things have changed, but some haven't, just the method. But anyway, Mr. Williams, you know, he was, he was a very accomplished man. And, um, yeah, he said basically his, his theory was easy, man. It really was. If you're not, you, you don't hit me, I won't hit you. You know, and like I said before, that was before Malcolm and, you know, Martin. And as, as Malcolm started coming up, that's when Mr. him and Mr. Williams used to get together when he went to New York and, you know, exchange ideas. But, of course, just like Malcolm, you don't hear much about uh, uh, Mr. Williams. You, and you do hear a lot about Malcolm now. That's only because of his relationship with the nation of Islam. But what he stood for, you didn't hear much of that, just like you didn't hear it. You know why? Because they were both categorized as militants, revolutionary. Anytime you get, you, you're labeled that, you will not be recognized. And it's sad that you know even our own uh, people don't even know about men like uh, Robert Williams or his wife Mabel. Because don't, don't think Mabel was just um, idly standing by. You know, she believed in armed defense as well, which a lot of women during during that time did. You know, and if you really want to think about the, the thought of armed self-defense, you can go all the way back to Harriet Tubman, who carried a pistol with her as she helped people um, to freedom. 
to defend herself against slave uh, um, catchers. So armed defense was not a new, a new thought process. It's just that a lot of people didn't want to employ it, use it. You know, which is natural for anyone to defend themselves. It really is. But the system was so rigged and set up where, you know, you could defend yourself, but you still would be found wrong if you made it all to trial or the courthouse. So, you know, it was a very interesting time. It really was. And um, I think Mr. Williams, you know, he... He did what he could. But the interesting thing, he had his own chapter of the NWACP down in Monroe. Okay, him and his wife helped start. And it was uh, interracial, one of the few interracial NWACP chapters in the country during that time. And as Mr. Wills was going through these little issues, you know, the NWACP wouldn't back him because they said he advocated violence. Yeah. To even to the point where they suspended Mr. Williams. They suspended him as chapter president. Just because he said we must defend ourselves. And you know, <laughs> see, this is like I said, it's a lot of things that you, you when you read you find out um <laughs> that you don't find out through normal channels. He sent um, Martin Luther King Jr. a telegram and told him, you know, as a leader, you are a coward. Now, this is before Martin started marching with the, the crowds and stuff like that. Wills was saying, you send these freedom riders down here knowing they're going to get beat up. But you aren't leading. You're not as a leader. You won't come down here with them. That's a strong statement to tell somebody. His thought, his process was, you know, as a leader, you lead from the front. But see, that's the that's the pieces of history that you're not going to hear about. Now you can watch Selma all this this um this month, and of course they're going to show everything with with Martin in front, maybe one or two marches. But see, that that was the end of struggle that was going on within the black community during that time among the leaders. Among the leaders. But Williams, he he thought, you know, the thing, interesting thing, he started out talking about local community, my home, my block. But he ended up talking about international, worldwide. Worldwide. And if you think about last summer, and the Black Lives Matter marches, that just wasn't here in the United States. That was worldwide. So as you you look back on what Williams was trying to say and what has taken place, you can say it, it kind of was successful. Now, you, let's be honest. You, we know the United States has built its, its reputation on violence, whether they start in wars or, you know, what goes on in our neighborhoods on a daily basis. But it's interesting that you want to bring the violence, but you want, don't want anyone to defend themselves or, you, you understand, fight back. Your people that you say are citizens. 
So that that is the, the, the ideology that they had to deal with. And they just, at, to the point, I think it was an evolution to where we're not going to be yes or Mr. Charlie no more. You know, we, we're going to be, um, yeah, don't hit me, I won't hit you. And that's, that was Mr. Williams' thought process. You know, and it, it, it's sad that a, a, a so-called American had to leave the country to protect himself, to protect himself. But, it, it, you know, what, what some say well, is a bad thing turned out be a, to be a good thing, really. Because look at the people he got to hang out with. Hu Chai Min, Miles Satong, Fidel and Raul Castro. You know, and, and, you know, a lot of times United States will make individuals out to be, you know, bad people or, you know, they just terrible dictators, whatever. But it's sometimes I, I say it on the show all the time. You sit down and talk to someone, you realize, hey, they're not as bad as people think, say they are. Because sometimes you have some of the same ideas. You just don't get a chance to say it because you let reputation ruin your chance to learn something. And that's what Robert Williams eventually did. He was just learning. Started a newsletter, The Crusader, with his father. Radio station in Cuba. You know, Radio Freedom. So once he left the country, he just didn't remain silent. Which a lot of our leaders do right now. They stand up and you see them for a flash and then, boop, they're gone. Well, honestly, there are really no leaders today. Yeah. But you know, I, I don't want to just let y'all think it was just men because there was a lot of women that um actually um believed in armed self-defense as well. Black women, I'm talking about. You know, think about the women in the Black Panther Party. You know, uh, the, Repub- the Republic of New Africa. Ashante Shakur, Charlotte Hill, Sandra Red Pratt, Nasande Mande. And then, of course, Angela Davis. You know, Robert, I mean, how many people would be smart enough to form a rifle club through the National Rifle Association? A white group. Think about that. And not only talk to men, but talk to women as well, the wives, the daughters. So they could defend themselves. That's what I'm talking about, man. You know, we have to teach our own. We do. But we can't just teach them with violence. You know, you have to teach them to be smart as well. Sometimes words is all it takes. Sometimes. Now, I'm just going to say sometimes because let's be honest. I know there's sometimes I even want to throw hands with somebody. So I'm not going to say it's not, <laughs> you know, you can't 
defend yourself. But it's it's interesting that defending themselves was considered violence. But when law enforcement did it, it was considered we uh, what is it uh, rebelling, uh, uh, keeping a protest down, unlawful protest. That wasn't violent. That was necessary. That that is um, basically the, the the thing with Mr. Williams. Of course, he had a ten point program, which was called the Monroe Program, and um, some of the things in it were pretty interesting. Um, number one, induce factories in this country to hire without discrimination. Number two, induce the local employment agency to grant non-whites the same privileges. Number three, agency that non-whites are entitled to the same privileges, courtesies, and consideration given to whites. <laughs> That's an interesting statement in itself. Number four. Construct a swimming pool in the Winchester Avenue area of Monroe. Of course, you know, they had the incident with the pool. Well, they didn't want the blast to get in it. And then when they did ask, you know, what if we can get one day, they said they couldn't do it. Why? Because they would have to drain and clean the pool. Kind of mindset, man, they they were dealing with. Five, remove all signs in the city of Monroe designating one area for colored and another for whites. Six, instruct the superintendent of schools that they that he must prepare to desegregate the city school no later than 1962. That was a good year. <laughs> Number seven, provide adequate transportation for all school children. Number eight, formally request the state medical board to permit Dr. Albert F. Perry Jr. to, to practice medicine in Monroe and Union County. Number nine, employ Negroes in skilled or supervisory capacities in the city government. And number 10, act immediately on all of these proposals and inform the committee and the public of your actions. So that was the Monroe program, okay, program. And it was signed Robert F. Williams, Albert E. Perry, Jr., M.D., and John W. McDowell. Now, if you recognize some of these are the same things that Martin and other civil rights leader would later take up. You know, so, yeah. So, as you can see, you know, the, 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 the the system it, it rolls and it rolls and it, you know it just gains more momentum. So things change. So things change. But anyway, that was the story of Mr. Robert Williams, uh, told by Mel M- Mabel, <laughs> Mabel Williams, and um, I hope you enjoyed it. You know, I, I think this this month I've decided to do things a little bit different since it is quote unquote Black History Month. Um. Yeah, bring you bring you information from a different different way this time. You know, like today was the clip uh, of Robert Williams. Next week it's gonna be real good, y'all, because we're gonna go through the civil rights through the music. Yeah, we're gonna go through the civil rights music. I mean, period through the music. You know, that's gonna be kicking. I haven't decided how far back I'm gonna go yet, or how far forward I'm gonna come. 
But yeah, it's going to be the bomb diggity. I think it is anyway. <laughs> you know, week three, I don't know. We'll, we'll find something else different to do. But that's that's what we have to do. We have to make learning interesting. You know, you have to make it um, bring information out that makes people want to go and, and do a little further research. You know, and as uh, while you're doing research on that one person, a name may pop up and then you go and research that person. Then you, you're learning even more. You know, the more the more we know, the better we can be. I know it's hard with social media and all these electronic PS6s and 5s and 4s and all that other stuff. Yeah, I know it's hard. Because nobody wants to sit down and actually read and really give some main information now with all this uh, these, these distractions going on. And they wait till Black History Month and wait for somebody else to come by and tell them who did what and who did this. Well, it's time for us to start teaching our our kids, okay? Start teaching ourselves because you're never too, too old to learn. You learn something new every day whether you admit it or not. So that that's why we brought you um, Robert F. Williams today because it was different. I know it was someone that you haven't heard a lot of. I mean, just looking at the schedule on television today, Selma, Roots, um, Hidden Figures, and no telling what else they come up with. You know, the regular, regular, no Mount Kamek's going to be on. Um, uh, Miss Jane Pittman, the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman may come out being the sixth just passed. May she rest in heaven. Uh, yeah. Couple of black exploitation films, I'm sure. But yeah, that's that's gonna be what you're gonna see this month. I doubt if they show the Reverend Vernon John story. See, a lot of people don't know about the Reverend Vernon Johns. He was the pastor at the church before Martin Luther King Jr. came. And the interesting thing about that, the reason why he left because the uh deacon board decided that he was too radical. Because he wanted to help the people. He was helping the people. And he wanted to stand up. But the sophisticated black folk in the church tell him, no, we're good. We have a good relationship with the whites now. We don't want to stir that up. Didn't believe. And brought Martin in. See, those are the little tidbits that nobody tell you about. Because... <laughs> Because everybody's happy with learning about Malcolm X, Rosa Parks, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., W.E.B. Du Bois, you know. But we have to go further. Educate ourselves. We have to go further. Great thing. It, it, It really is. It's a great thing. And that is what I'm trying to do, bring some new information, trying to in, in, entice your, your learning nerve. <laughs> That's a good one, entice your learning nerve. And make you want to go and look up some things. Now, just sit down and just type in civil civil rights and see what comes up. 
And don't go for the first name because you know it's going to be Martin or Malcolm. You know, go back two or three pages and see who else on there. And do a little search on that. It's Black History Month. I mean, learn from that. That's all. It's, it's just too easy. It's too easy. Too easy. But anyway, we finna get up out of here, man. We've been here for a minute. And um, I hope you enjoyed it. If you didn't catch it all, just go back and listen again. Y'all know the shows will be archived. If you like the show and you're listening, hit the follow button. I really appreciate it. If you got anything for me, send it to Eric Let's L-E-T-S Talk at gmail.com. Um, Facebook, let's talk with Mr. Talk. You know, I'm on Facebook. Uh, Instagram, Eric, let's talk. Okay, so those are all the ways you can hit me up. And let me know. Let me know what you thought about the show. Let me know if you want me to uh, talk about anything in particular on the show. And we'll make it happen for you. Even if you want to be on the show as a guest, we can do that too. So either way, either way. All right. So, once again, thank y'all for hanging out with us. We'll be back in next Monday with some, oh, man, uh, stroll through the civil rights period through music, through the music. We're going to play the music, then we're going to tell you how the music came about and what was the real thought behind it. Because a lot of people don't understand a lot of the music that they were dancing to and, and, and listening to, playing over and over, were actually protest songs. Yeah. But we're going to bring you that um, exciting show next week. All right. So we're going to get out of here. We're going to take you out of here with a little music. But um, make sure you be back here Monday. Y'all have a great week. And uh, remember, Lord's love you. Remember, keep smiling. Show appreciation. Forgive with open heart. But make sure you're forgiving yourself first. And the biggest, best thing, learn to laugh at yourself. You can laugh at yourself. Everything else is just gravy. Y'all be strong. All right. Keep learning. And I'll see y'all next Monday. Have a good one. We're out of here. See what you got? Hey, man, be my guest. Be my guest. <laughs> this should be funny. This should be completely hilarious. <laughs> hey, guys, let him play. All right, I'll do 12 bar blues and C. All right. Just follow me, I'll count you in.
us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.